In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Three in One, who gives us Himself as the answer to our sins. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we're starting off a new sermon series today, and that sermon series, as you can see on the front of your bulletin, is called Theology of the Cross. And the Theology of the Cross actually is a, it comes from a historical event that happened in our founder's life, in the life of Martin Luther. If you kind of sort of know the story of Martin Luther, you probably know that everything really starts to pick up in his life when he nails 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And the reason that he did that was that he had some questions about the practice of indulgences, which were basically kind of this thing that said that, well, if you're really sorry for your sins, what you will do is you will buy one of these pieces of paper, and that will prove that you're really sorry for your sins, and God will forgive them. And Luther said, I don't really think that that's the way that God works. That doesn't appear to be the way that it works in Scripture. And so things started to get very very hot for Luther at that point. He started to get very famous, which he wasn't very used to. His work started to get published throughout all of Germany. And people started to notice him. (coughs) Pardon me people started to notice what he was all about, including his friends, his brothers, his order of the Augustinian friars. It was this small religious group of people that had devoted their lives to being religious. They were priests, they were monks, they were all sorts of people. And so they had a question. Basically, Luther was a part of their family. They saw Luther getting very famous for this 95 Theses thing. And they said, why don't you come on back home? Why don't you explain some of this to us? Why don't you let us know what's really driving all of this? And so what they did, (coughs) pardon me, just a little tickle today. What they did was they invited him back and they said, hey, Um, will you present a paper for us that will help us to understand what this sort of new theology is that's really driving what you're saying in these 95 theses. And so what Luther did was he drafted sort of a paper that he was going to present in front of all of these people. That paper was called the Heidelberg Disputation because it happened in the town of Heidelberg where they brought him to sort of tell people what it was all about. And, of course, in the way that things were argued during the day, this one also had multiple theses. Not 95 this time, but 28 28 different theses that sort of led you through the argument or the understanding of what this theology was all about. And it weren't that it wasn't that they were 28 separate points just like the 95 theses weren't 95 separate points. These were points that led one to another to the next. 
In fact, if Luther were writing the Heidelberg Disputation today, or if he were writing the 95 Theses today, we probably would just know those things as the 95 PowerPoint slides or the 28 PowerPoint slides, because that's essentially what they are. And so he says, this is what's really driving my theology. This is what's driving the understanding that I have of God that I have seen in Scripture. And that's where this stuff about indulgence is coming from. That's where this stuff that, about the gospel is coming from. That's where all of this stuff is coming out of. And so over this season of Lent, we're going to be taking a look at the theology specifically from that Heidelberg disputation, that because Heidelberg disputation is a mouthful, it oftentimes gets renamed the theology of the cross. And the theology of the cross is this awesome kind of Lutheran document that we don't really talk about that much. But because this year we're sort of ramping up to the 500th anniversary of the Lutheran Reformation, well, we're going to take a look at it in depth. And we're going to start that off by taking a look in depth at the first two of those theses. And they're kind of shocking. The first thesis says, The law of God, although the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance man on his way to righteousness, but rather hinders him. I'll say that again just so it's kind of formal language, so it kind of sticks in there a little bit better. The law of God, although the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance man on his way to righteousness, but rather hinders him. And you start going, oh, well, that's interesting. And it's important to kind of get what Luther's not saying in the midst of this. Luther is not saying that the law of God is a bad thing. Luther is not saying that the law of God is something that we should ignore. Which is good, because we just spent several weeks reciting the Ten Commandments together in this collection of people. But what he's saying is that that law cannot advance you to righteousness. It can't make you the kind of person that God would say is righteous, is perfect, is good. That the law of God cannot do that. In fact, it even hinders To which I think we live in a time and in a culture that really kind of gets that. I think that there's a lot of people around us in culture that would say that following things like the Ten Commandments and following things like religion don't necessarily make you a good person. We know a lot of religious people out there. And a lot of religious people who do a lot of things that seem to be, well, not so good. And so, when we take a look at what it means to be religious, 
which essentially is to follow a prescribed set of rules. Well, our culture has identified that, well, that actually maybe doesn't help you out. Just following a set of arbitrary rules, whatever they might be, they, they don't actually help you to become a good person. Because in our parlance, what righteous means is a good person. That's what we mean when we say, well, that person is a good person. What we're saying there is that person is righteous. And how do you get to be righteous? Well, a lot of people would say you definitely do not get to being righteous by being religious. And a lot of people in our culture would even say that being religious might even hinder you from being a good person. Which is shocking. And for those of us who believe in the law of God and who recognize that there's good things there, it might even seem a little bit offensive. When people say, well, religion, that doesn't make you a good person. In fact, it maybe even makes you a bad person. We've heard that around us. And for those people, when they say that, They have a sort of different operating system. They have something else that they believe makes them a good person. They are not neglecting the idea of righteousness. They're just saying, you don't get to righteousness through religion. And what they would say is that you probably get to righteousness through a sort of irreligion. Through this kind of sense of just deeming yourself righteous and saying that, well, I am just a good person and so I am going to follow my own truth because my truth has to be good because I am good and therefore what flows from good has to be good. But that's really not the way that it works out either. Because we've seen a lot of people that follow their own truth. And following their own truth doesn't necessarily get them to be any more righteous than the religious people that are out there. And in fact, Luther even weighs in on this. He says that that other option doesn't work. The option that says much less can human works, which are done over and over again with the aid of natural precepts, lead to that end. And basically what he's saying there is that it's not about following the law. It's also not about following whatever's in your heart. You don't get to just be Princess Elsa. And let it go and do whatever feels right for you. Because each of those options has a tendency of leaving you morally bankrupt. You've got no assurance there. You know religious people that are morally bankrupt. You know irreligious people that are morally bankrupt. Which leads us to a place of desperation where we go, Oh, so I can be religious and this isn't going to work out for me. Or I can be irreligious and this isn't going to work out for me. Well, I I don't know. Which one do I choose? 
If I'm religious, I feel really good about myself because I'm doing these religious things, but then sometimes I want to feel just good about following what I want to do, and so I want to be irreligious. And so we sort of vacillate between the two of them. But God says there's a third way. And that third way is the gospel. And what the gospel is, is that is something that doesn't hinge on you. The gospel is something that doesn't hinge on your works if you're a religious person. So if you're a religious person, what you're doing is that you are basically saying, okay, well, I am going to follow this prescribed set of rules and that prescribed set of rules is going to be all about my works and how well I follow those rules. And if you're an irreligious person, you're going to say, well, the way that I get to be righteous is simply by being righteous, by thinking of myself in such a way that I can say, well, I'm a good person. And so because I'm a good person, I do good things. But both of those hinge on you. And God says, it's neither one of those. And so what do you do in order to be righteous? Nothing. And you say, huh? Could, could you run that by me again? What do you do in order to be righteous? Nothing. And you say, well, how can that be? That, that, that doesn't make any sense. Well, the only way that you can be anything and not do anything is to have somebody else do something to you. Which is what the gospel is. It doesn't hinge on you, it hinges on Jesus. It hinges on the fact that He died on a cross and saved you from your sins. A way to think about it is like this. I have an orange tree in my backyard. It is currently budding out, and I'm getting excited about the number of oranges that I might have later on this year. Seriously am. But if I wasn't excited about those oranges and instead I said, well, I want apples. Well, how would I get to having apples? Well, the religious response would probably be, okay, let me do a lot of fertilizing. Let me make sure that I am watering it enough. Let me make sure that everything is going well. I'm going to put a net over it to protect it from the birds. And then maybe if I do enough work, then I will have apples. And the disappointing thing come around October, November is that I'm going to have oranges. And so I go, well, maybe next year what I'll do is I'll just stand in front of my orange bush and I will say, you are an apple tree. Every day, maybe a lot of times, do some positive affirmations for it and just say, you are an apple tree. Wait, but that's really not going to work either. I'm going to end up with oranges again. 
And so what I'm going to need is I'm going to need somebody who can bend time and space, who can change the DNA of the plant so that it doesn't become an orange tree anymore, that it becomes an apple tree. And that is what God has done for us. He has made us into Jesus trees. And our role in that isn't changing our being. He's gotten that taken care of. It's simply to live in the weirdness of applehood. (laughs) To say, I once was an orange tree, but now I am an apple tree. I once was a sinner, but now I am a saint. That it's not about religion and it's not about irreligion, but it's about the gospel that changes us. That's the theology of the cross in a nutshell or an orange peel or an apple skin. And it's about what God does for us and rejoicing in that and recognizing that. And even growing in that. But first and foremost, recognizing that it's about Jesus, what he's done for us. I mentioned earlier that you have these weird stickers that are connected to your connection cards. And if you were here on Ash Wednesday, you probably heard a little bit about this. But if you weren't, we're going to catch you up. What those are all about is we are giving these to you as a reminder that it's Lent. And we're giving them to you as a reminder that it's all about the cross of Christ. And on Ash Wednesday, we receive ash marks upon our foreheads to remind us of the cross of Christ. That cross that absorbed all of our sins. That cross that changed us from sinful trees into saint trees. And we ask, you've got six of them. You've got enough to make it to next Sunday. What we ask of you is to put that someplace where you'll see it or someplace that is going to remind you. And if you're slightly more brave, put it someplace where maybe other people can see it. And if they ask you about it, just tell them what it reminds you of. Tell them, well, it reminds me that Jesus died for my sins. Tell tell them that it reminds you that Jesus absorbed all of that sin for you. Tell them that it reminds you that you are an apple tree. And they'll go crazy. Because that sounds bonkers. And you'll have to explain a little bit more. And what we want you to do at the end of that, if you have the guts, is if somebody asks you about that, and if you tell them, then just... Say, you know, I don't need this. Would you like to have it? Because the thing about this message of the gospel is that it's news that everybody needs to hear. It's news that everybody has a deep yearning for. That we're not saved by our religion or our irreligion. That we're saved by Jesus.
So this week, as you put that sticker in the bottom of your shoe or on your lapel or wherever you put it to remind you, may that remind you that it's not about your religion and it's not about your irreligion, but that it is about Jesus and what he has done for you. Amen.